Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. There's no getting around it. If you want to be a successful chef or bartender, you have to have a consuming passion for food, drink, and hospitality, especially in New Orleans. But what distinguishes our city from many other dining destinations is the fact that we're one of the oldest cities in America, with three centuries of history and tales too delicious to believe. On this week's episode, we meet three foodies whose appetite for history is as keen as their love for cooking and cocktails. We begin with Chef Chris Montero at the Napoleon House. Chris isn't just an accomplished chef, but he's also a passionate preservationist and historian. He gives us a tour of the historic French Quarter property from the bar to the cupola and all points in between. Then. Dana Hahn, executive chef of Carmo and Café Coeur, shares how his interest in New Orleans history and culture motivated him to move here. For Dana, his perfect day is an afternoon spent in the Williams Research Center, followed by a beer and tuna sandwich at the Napoleon House. Finally, Legendary bartender Chris McMillan presents us with a chronicle of New Orleans bars from the 19th century, where our classic cocktails were invented. We've got chefs, bartenders, and history buffs on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Chris Montero. I'm the general manager and executive chef of the Napoleon House. Over the course of his decades-long career with the Ralph Brennan Restaurant Group, Chef Chris Montero has played a major role in several notable ventures. He served as executive chef at Baco's in the French Quarter for 12 years, opened and ran Café B in Metairie, and launched Café Noma in the New Orleans Museum of Art. His latest role? Keeper of the historic Napoleon House, somewhat of a feather in the cap of his professional career. I'm a kid in the candy store right now, yes. With its funky European vibe and signature menu of items like Pimm's Cups and Mufaladas, the Napoleon House was a place the New Orleans-born chef knew about his entire life but his interest goes way beyond the bar and dining room. Chris is a lifelong history buff who regards history, especially New Orleans history, as his greatest passion, second only to food. Soon after he was tapped to be executive chef of the iconic restaurant in 2015, he immersed himself in over two centuries of story and lore, 
all centered around the two families who previously owned the building. It's kind of cool. 225 years of history and the first hundred year was the Gerard family and the second hundred years the Impostato family. And all of the history that I know was just word of mouth history from the Impostados. Some of it, like most oral histories, it gets convoluted and crosses over and much like the history of my family, but a lot of it's inaccurate. And we've procured and hired a historic architect, Robbie Cangelosi. In the last three years since we, we've uncovered so much that we didn't know about the building. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. In 2018, Louisiana Eats joined Chris at the Napoleon House Bar, where portraits of impostados and Napoleon Bonaparte lined the walls. The chef was eager to give us a tour of the landmark and fill us in on its history, beginning with the transition of ownership from the impostados to Ralph Brennan in 2015. The Impostato family had been running this all of their life. The, you know, the second generation, that was Sal Impostato and his four sisters had been running this from the time they were children and it's all they'd ever done. And those, they were getting kind of, kind of tired. You know, they're all in their mid seventies to early eighties and uh, they were ready to pass this torch on. And what happened were we, as you probably know, regained and restored the original Brennan's restaurant on Royal Street, we being Ralph Brennan and the group. And while we were going through that restoration, there were a lot of articles being written and, you know, and most of them focused on Ralph's intent of retaining the family history and preserving that history, etc. And that caught the eye of Sal Impostato. And he reached out to Ralph Brennan, kind of behind the scenes and said, you know, would you be interested in taking over my family's restaurant? With Ralph said, yes without on the phone without hearing any details and that process took about a year <laughs> the negotiations no lawyers no real estate just ralph and sal and pastado old old-fashioned but somewhere in that period ralph called me and said chris do I, you can't say anything to anyone but do i have a something for you you're gonna love it right because i'm a history nut always have been I was a history major in college, and I've always been interested in New Orleans, not just culinary history, but I've loved the architecture and the culture and so on. And uh, he said, man, do I have uh, something you're gonna love, and it's gonna be your retirement plan. So I was just thrilled and had no idea the breadth and depth of what was in this building. Guiding us through the decaying splendor of the restaurant's first floor, Chef Chris led us upstairs. Holy space! Formerly apartments, the space was converted to make room for private parties and receptions. Boasting carved wooden fireplace mantles, ornate chandeliers, and handsome doorways, the elegant rooms were beautifully preserved, as if they were suspended in time. So the first thing that was a big surprise to me was that the Napoleon House is a national historic landmark, and it's not by historical designation the Napoleon House, it's called the Gerard House, right? In 1797, the three Gerard brothers began building this property. The oldest parts of the building date back to the late 1700s, just after the last fires here in the French Quarter. And it was their business offices at first, and the corner was an open lot. And when the oldest brother died in the early 1800s, Nicholas Gerard wanted to build a residence on what was the business property. 
And that's where we're sitting right now. We're sitting in the apartment of Nicholas Gerard that was finished in 1812, which also was the year he was elected mayor of New Orleans. So not only was he a wealthy businessman, he also has a distinction of being the first elected mayor to the city of New Orleans in 1812. He's a Frenchman, right? You're gonna love this. He spoke no English. So the first mayor of New Orleans, after it became part of America, after the Louisiana Purchase, spoke no English. He really actually didn't have a lot of admiration towards Americans. And he said, they said, yeah, I want to do his inauguration in English. And he said, maybe these Americans should learn to speak French, right? <laughs> and he refused to speak any English in his inauguration. It's just a New Orleans thing, right? So this guy is the mayor of New Orleans in 1812. And then he's elected for a second term in 1814. We all know what 1814 was in New Orleans, the beginning of the Battle of New Orleans, the end of 1814. January of 1815, the Battle of New Orleans takes place in Chalmette. Very historic event. Well, who's the mayor at the time is sitting here in the apartment where this is Nicholas Gerard. He's also in charge of the Creole militia, and he was liaison to Andrew Jackson in helping to collaborate with the Creoles, the French-speaking Creoles, but really what he was instrumental in was he had these ties to Jean Lafitte and Dominic Yu. Uh, Dominic Yu was a general in Napoleon's army, one of the facts that come into play at the end of the story. So therefore historians say that Gerard's involvement with Jackson was tremendously instrumental in this victory because of the people he was able to tie together with Jackson and his army from out of, out of the state. We, we have this overwhelming victory in the Battle of New Orleans and Gerard's even more popular here in the city amongst the Creoles. He gets all the credit with locals. The rest of the country, you know, and J Jackson goes on to become president and so on. A few years later, Napoleon Bonaparte is exiled to a remote island in the, in the Atlantic, right? And uh, this is 1818. And around the city of New Orleans, that is a big deal. And the buzz starts going all around town. The reason that he's making this apartment more and more opulent all the time, he's adding a cupola to the roof and he's adding doing restoration to these apartments on the top floor that no people have lived up there the reason he's doing all these embellishments is to offer exile to napoleon they're gonna they're gonna rescue him with dominic you right mm. and that story catches wildfire around the city it's all the buzz it's very well documented that everyone was talking about it and then what happens napoleon he kicks off up yeah. and dies right 1821 he dies suddenly but Everyone in the city were convinced that this was going to be Napoleon's house. So shortly thereafter, it began being referred to as the house Napoleon was going to live in, mm. right? And it just, it just never went away. We have 200 years of this great story. And hey, we don't know that it wasn't true because right. there's, no, there's no documentation of any discussions about it other than what the locals were talking about. Do you know much about what happened with the property between the Girards and the Impostadas? I know a bit. I mean, we're learning a lot more every day. So during the Girard era, it was owned by the family all the way until the late 1800s. Girard died just before the Civil War in his 80s. He's buried in St. Louis Cemetery right down the street, mm -hmm. very near Marie Laveau. But his family retained, his heirs retained the property until the turn of that century. And he left his enormous fortune to charity, the vast majority. He's one of the greatest philanthropists the cities have ever known, uh, Nicholas Gerard. 
Louis Armstrong was raised in an orphanage that was built with funds from Nicholas Gerard's fortune that he left to, uh, to these charities. But the rest of his family had lots of wealth also. There were other brothers. And they retained the property until the late 1800s when we'll, it's lost between 1900 and 1912. And we're going to figure it out when it changed hands with a couple of leases. So one of those leasees who we've not been able to identify started a little small grocery store, which is now the main bar of the Napoleon House. We know that because we've got a picture in the other room from 1906 that says, has a Labardet grocery, right? And we don't know who that is. And then in 1914, a young man, man by the name of Giuseppe Impostato, who was in his mid-20s, saved enough money a Sicilian immigrant, very working class, to buy what was once the mayor's mansion here in New Orleans. Coming up next, our Napoleon House tour continues as Chef Chris Montero shares the history and culinary legacy of the building's 20th century owners, the Impostato family. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Crystal Hot Sauce, sponsor of our new Cooking with Poppy series. Since this year we're having a COVID carnival, on Saturday, February 6th, I'm hosting our first online cooking class to get you all ready to revel in place for Mardi Gras 2021. Cocktails, Creole food, and of course, king cake. I'll show you how. To learn more and reserve your spot, visit poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. If you're just joining us, we're revisiting our 2018 walkthrough of the Napoleon House, an iconic French Quarter restaurant with over two centuries of history. Our guide, executive chef and history buff Chris Montero, has been on quite a tour of discovery. Ever since Sal Impostato handed over the Napoleon House keys to Ralph Brennan in 2015. After Reconstruction, the French Quarter transitioned from an opulent cosmopolitan center to a working class neighborhood with a large immigrant population. In 1920, Giuseppe, better known as Uncle Joe Impostato, purchased the home of former New Orleans mayor Nicholas Girard. By the time he bought the Napoleon House, so many Sicilian immigrants lived in the quarter that it was often called Little Palermo. Uncle Joe, Giuseppe Impostato, this young man, had a dream of opening a Sicilian market. He wanted a grocery store, and that's originally what it was. We've got just a handful of pictures of the Napoleon House as a Sicilian grocery, you know, with canned tomatoes on the walls and yeah. little aprons. 
that started slowly in 1914, but we do know that before the Depression era, it had started selling sandwiches and wine and beer. There was some rumors of them distilling beer here, and that became a popular outlet for these Irish immigrants and the Italian workers. You know, a real roughneck working class kind of grocery slash bar, right? And apparently that really caught traction. And uh, in Prohibition, Uncle Joe started selling a little more wine. I do know that Uncle Joe brewed some beer. So that after Prohibition, it really the focus of the Napoleon House was a bar room. When did he carry the Victrola downstairs? Uh, somewhere in the 30s. Uncle Joe, Giuseppe Impostato, was a huge fan of opera. That was his passion. And he started bringing the Victrola down into the, when it, when it started becoming a more popular bar and playing classical music. Look at the records. Those are Uncle Joe's records. Those are Uncle Joe's. Oh, my goodness. Walking through the banquet rooms on the second floor, Chris led us into a four-room apartment, the former home of Joe Impostato. This is where Giuseppe passed away in 1985 at 100 years old. And this is the old section of the building. We're standing above the 1700. Below this parquet floor are the old, old, some of the oldest flooring in, in, in the city of New Orleans, dating from the late 1700s. Also, directly below us was the Napoleon House's famous downstairs bar. I asked Chris to explain the story of how the Pimm's Cup cocktail came to be a classic menu item under Joe's leadership couple of things that transpired. He wasn't necessarily a fan of hard drinking and alcohol and whiskey drinking Irishmen. You know, he, he liked wine and beer and low alcohol. And he introduced this low alcohol drink from London uh, that was kind of a newfangled thing, apparently, when he was young, called a Pimm's Cup downstairs to the bar. And he introduced Pimm's Cups to New Orleans. And we know this from the Pimm's folks that have a history that this was one of the first venues in America that started importing Pimm's, number one, because of Uncle Joe. So we like to give him all the credit, as the Pimm's people do, for being the largest distributor or sales uh, venue for Pimm's Cup in America, by far. There's nowhere close. So we're proud of that, right? Now, I know you must know the answer to this. When does the Muvalada appear here? Uh, it's a little convoluted, but this is what we know. Um, we know that he liked po'boys, uh, Uncle Joe. His cousin owned the Union Bakery that made a lot of the, the Italian bread, the Italian twist, and the muffalata loaves. Uh, we know that Central Grocery takes credit, and rightly so, for introducing the muffalatas to New Orleans, but that was a, a relative of Giuseppe that sold the muffalatas. Somewhere in the 20s, he began selling more and more sandwiches. And, you know, the muffalata just had to be because it was his cousin that sold the loaf. And he wanted to sell it hot, though. He didn't think it needed to be a cold deli sandwich. And that's been our reputation ever since, right? But, you know, I'm a big fan of all of it. So we all we I strive to do here is to be as authentic and integral to those recipes. You know, Ralph Brennan told me something the day I started here. He said, our number one mission is to honor the legacy of the Impostato family. Uh, he is just enamored and loves the fact that uh, we were fortunate enough to keep this great entity going. And that's what we do. I, I, I make the original recipes. Next, 
Chris led us up a grand centuries-old staircase, taking us from the second to the third floor. On the next level, Chris showed us a number of apartments overlooking Charters and St. Louis streets. Oh my goodness, what a view. Looking around, I couldn't help but feel that with each staircase we climbed, we were going further back in time. And then we go into the real-time warp now, right? Up into what we refer to as the attic. Well, tell me about this space. So this has been the most intriguing space, and the one that we still are trying to sort out the details, but this is what we think we know. We're going we're gonna to determine a lot of this more in, uh, soon. When I got here, the impostato story of this space was the attic used to be dormitories for sailors in the 1800s, right? Because the Gerard family were in the import-export and business on the river. But as soon as I brought an architect up here, an historic architect, he took one look and said, these were not, he said that maybe after the Civil War, pre-Civil War, these were slave quarters. And because A, the dead giveaway, is these traditional servant stairs, which are here that go what originally went all the way down to the ground floor. But since that presumption was made, I've done more research. And I've now come to identify the slaves who actually lived here. Oh, right? how in the world did you do that? I did that by Facebook and oh. social media and looking up a, a site of an author who wrote a fictional novel about Napoleon in New Orleans, but she had a thread of people that were communicating with her about her book, and one of them were descendants of Nicholas Gerard, who live in Evangeline Parish, where he had a large, apparently there are a lot of Gerard descendants in that area of the state. So we began communicating with them. Then I did some research from her book uh, about who were the slaves owned by Gerard, of which he had hundreds, but only three that lived in his apartment in Napoleon House. And here's where it gets really cool for me. There were two men and a, and a woman who lived up here in the third floor, and they were personal house slaves of Nicholas Gerard. And the daughter of the woman who lived here went on to marry Nicholas Gerard's nephew who inherited all of his property including the the big plantation. Now that was pre-Civil War was relatively unheard of that it wasn't uncommon for marriages or, or rather children from slave owners and slaves, but for an aristocratic family to have married the daughter of a slave who lived up to is super cool, right? Yeah. Um, it kind of shows that, that of that era there was different mindset amongst some of the property owners. And their descendants of this woman who lived here are the Gerard family that lives in Evangeline Parish. And the daughter who communicated with me did not know that. So she's coming soon to come visit where her great, uh, sixth great-grandmother lived in 1800s. She's bringing the family tree, the genealogy tree, and we're going to trace everyone back here to this Incredible. This Incredible. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And we've just discovered that literally in the last six months. Our final destination was the jewel of this architectural crown, an octagonal cupola that provided us with a breathtaking view of the Quarter and Mississippi River. So this was something that Gerard built as a bit of a fancy? Again, another area that we're trying to understand, like why did he build an Italian cupola on top of his Creole, Spanish, Caribbean architecture? Well, because of his business, in 1800, you'd have been looking right down on the wharf, 
and perhaps it was a business consideration, but some of the writings indicate that he was just showing off, right? Wow. That he was envious of the cupolas on the, on the cabildo, and that he wanted to have the tallest residence in the city of New Orleans, which it was, um, because the only thing taller would have been the cathedral and the cabildo at the time. So uh, maybe he was just kind of flaunting his wealth at the time. But we don't know. Either way you look at it, this is one of the most integral aspects of the building. If you look at all the old paintings in the historic collection, they all feature the cupola on the roof. We're really proud of it. We plan to take great care of it, and we're going to make sure it's around for another 100 or 200 years for people to experience. This is just fantastic. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure, as always. Our 2018 tour of the Napoleon House with chef, preservationist, and historian Chris Montero. The Napoleon House is currently open for dine-in and takeout. With its historic character and charisma, for generations, the French Quarter has played muse to artists, writers, and musicians, not to mention chefs. Chef Dana Hahn's love for the Quarter's history and culture inspired him to settle down in New Orleans and open Carmo in 2010. With menu options for vegans, vegetarians, and meat eaters alike, the casual tropical cafe has made its mark on the city's warehouse district. In 2019, when the historic New Orleans collection opened a new museum expansion in a 19th century French Quarter compound, Dana and his wife Christine unveiled an offshoot of Carmo called Café Cour. Nestled inside the courtyard, the restaurant offers traditional New Orleans and regional meals, as well as a taste of history. Shortly after Café Cour opened its doors, we spoke with Dana to learn how this non-native chef and history lover came to open Carmo and call New Orleans home. Well, I, you know, I moved around most of my life. My dad was a Methodist minister, um, so you know, which typically they move folks every few years. And uh, then we we settled down and ended up uh, opening a restaurant. But even still, we were always uh, kind of mobile. So th- I've lived here at least twice as long as I've lived anyplace else. But but growing up, I was into music and played saxophone. So I discovered Harold Baptiste at a, from a fairly young age who kind of spurred my interest a little bit in New Orleans and then began to realize that a lot of the music that I liked came from New Orleans. And so it became almost like a mythical you know, destination for me. And then when I was finally able to visit here, I realized that it's a magical place that, that I needed to be at some point. And uh, so that that's where the interest came from. And frankly, you know, for, for me, the perfect afternoon from the time I lived here was going to the, the Williams Research Center, you know, spending a whole afternoon and walking away with, with a stack of photocopies going over to Napoleon House, having a beer and, and a tuna sandwich and, and reading through those. So that's, yeah, I, I, I don't think I could not live here now. So. 
It's incredible the way in New Orleans food and music always holds hands. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and now living here, I always tell people who are visiting, it's like, listen, if you're if you're not cool with hearing music, you know, at least every day somewhere, you know, whether it's on the street or, or you know, walking past a club or whatever, and if you're not cool with standing on the street corner and talking to somebody about red beans and rice or, or whatever, you know, whatever the music uh, conversation is, it's not a place for you. It is, <laughs> this, this is not a place of personal, you know, kind of space. We, it's, a shared, it's a shared personal space. Tell me how Carmo began. Really began in San Francisco, at least the idea for it. We, we were living in San Francisco. Christina, my wife, was working in different restaurants. We had a production company. We were doing catering. We were doing cooking classes, vegan cooking classes on the weekend. Uh, when we found out at a certain point from my production company, we had we were paying more than 50% rent, uh, San Francisco rent with New Orleans money, which is not a good exchange. So we decided to move down here, which was, was the perfect move. Uh, we began a catering business called Pear Dagobert's Kitchen. Per Dagobert was probably New Orleans' first gourmand. Um, he, was, he was a Capuchin monk who moved here from Quebec, I think, in 1721. And he was, he's, he's to me, the most New Orleanian, the earliest New Orleanian, as we know, fun-loving, food-loving, music-loving uh, folks today that, that we refer to as such. And I, I also believe, truly, that, that he's under recognized and appreciated in this city uh, because he was the vicar general of Louisiana uh, all the way up until 1760 or 1770. So for a long time, he was the most powerful spiritual leader in all of the Louisiana territory. So we, we named our catering company after this historical figure who we, we, we both were enamored with and uh, then we actually did a lot of the catering for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum for different events. We ended up finding the spot in the warehouse district finally, and it was just a food counter with Christina and I. And, and uh, so that's, that's kind of where it all began. Well, you were just then the perfect person for the HNOC to turn to when in their fabulous new facility on Royal Street, the Seigneur Brulator building, they decided that they needed a little cafe so that their visitors could linger. Tell me how you ended up here on Royal Street at the HNOC. Well, uh, we responded to an RFP request and, and uh, when uh, we, we began our proposals, it was a um, pretty quick process. Uh, we put it together. Uh, put a menu together, and I really just tried to keep it grounded in traditional cuisine of New Orleans. I'll start with the first dish that that I actually uh, began research with, which, having been to Italy and and been intrigued by something they call a muffaletto um, in Sicily, that that's a that's a dish which or a sandwich which. I knew that there had to be an interesting connection. Of course, we all know it as the dish that was created, uh, at least in, in our familiar version, uh, at Central Grocery. 
it it did have a long history, perhaps hundreds of years, uh, and and even longer before that. It's in Sicily. That's fascinating. Well, and uh, I did find reference to it being sold on the streets of New Orleans by street vendors. It it's a uh, it is a sandwich. The mufaletto is actually the bread, you know, and and that word etymo- the etymology of that word connects to a lot of familiar things like muffin, you know, comes from that same root. Um, so it is a bread. In this case, the 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 specific of a Sicilian mufaletto is the fennel or anise seed and durum wheat that's used to make this bun. You know, in Italy, you might find uh, different versions of it. Most of the versions uh, will contain seafood. One of the most iconic is the one kind of we, we patterned ours after, which is uh, with a little bit of poached tuna, some olive oil, some uh, olives, uh, some uh, roasted peppers, anchovies, a little bit of pecorino. So very kind of, well, kind of Mediterranean in, in style. And it makes sense. I think it makes sense when you taste it. You taste something that tastes like a muffalata, a muffalata. <laughs> but but it it ha- it tastes older. It tastes something you know something uh, I want to say historic. You know, so it is so fascinating. What you normally find in today's culinary world, someone has embellished, someone has invented, someone has fused, and instead. You just went back in time for authenticity for what is really a new taste for New Orleans. Yeah, I mean, every time I start to go and, you know, research a particular dish or just read, I just like to read about whether it's old menus or whether it's uh, my favorite thing right now is going on newspapers.com and going through the archived uh, newspapers of New Orleans in different languages even, and then you find references to all of these foods that you had no idea either that were popular maybe 100 or 150, uh, even 200 years ago, but also that really were very significant, important in our food, early food ways. Many of those things have disappeared. And so it's just, it's just a delight to be able to look back and find things that, especially when they turn out to be delicious, you know, that, that's, that's the best thing. Dana Hahn, executive chef and co-owner of Carmo and Cafe Core. Both restaurants are currently open for dining, delivery, and takeout. New Orleans boast the oldest restaurant in the nation? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. 
dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, just 40 minutes from New Orleans, Louisiana North Shore's Tammany Taste features the bounty of the bayou and rich culinary culture from award-winning chefs, mom-and-pop restaurants, specialty bakers, and creative mixologists. To discover more, request the newly released Explore the North Shore Inspiration Guide for local stories, custom itineraries, and event information at louisiananorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Does New Orleans boast the oldest restaurant in the nation? Actually, no. That distinction belongs to Delmonico's in New York City. Their history begins in 1827, when a pair of Swiss brothers, John and Peter Delmonico, invested $20,000 in gold coins to open a cafe they called Delmonico's. Originally serving only French pastry, by 1831, they evolved into a fine French restaurant. There at Delmonico's, many classic American dishes were invented, such as Eggs Benedict and Lobster Newburg. But it's important to note that while Delmonico's is the oldest restaurant in the nation, it's changed hands several times. But here in New Orleans, Antoine's Restaurant, second to Delmonico's in age, is still the oldest continuously operating family-owned restaurant in the U.S., thanks to Rick and Lisa Blunt, who today keep the home fires burning on St. Louis Street in the French Quarter. Even today, in the time of COVID, Antoine's is bravely carrying on. While the coronavirus has virtually eliminated this year's carnival season, you can be guaranteed that small private gatherings will still be honoring age-old Mardi Gras traditions there. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Chris McMillan is a 19th century bartender living in a 21st century world. His love and understanding for classic cocktails is like none other, and his knowledge of cocktail history is encyclopedic. In the early days of Louisiana Eats, Chris sat down with us for a timeless discussion on one of his favorite topics of research, the history of hotel bars in New Orleans. Well, you know, New Orleans, you have to understand the role that New Orleans played in the first half of the 19th century in America. It was second only to Manhattan for its economic importance. Because of the Mississippi River, it's the reason why we're here, you know, it was the trade route and distribution route for goods and services into the interior of the United States from Louisiana all the way to Canada. By the 1830s, 
New Orleans had become so important economically that we had actually tripled our population from 1830 to 1840. We went from 30,000 to 100,000 in 10 years. And we had a transient population of 40,000 people a year, people who came here seasonally to do business after the harvest had come in, uh, the cotton crop, the sugar crop. You know, uh, they came in to trade, uh, to buy, to sell, uh, to make their fortune and get rich. Well, when you have 40,000 people a year coming, they have to have a place to stay. You know, in order for a growing nation to have a growing commerce, you not only have to have a business infrastructure, a transportation infrastructure, but you have to have an accommodation infrastructure. And so it needed a new kind of dwelling uh, based on the vast numbers of people that we had to accommodate. The first hotel in America, or what we consider hotels today, uh, was uh, built in Boston, and it was called the Tremont House. And it was quickly followed by uh, the Astor in New York. Within the same five-year period, the, they built the St. Charles Hotel in New Orleans, which is on the place where Place St. Charles is located today. And it was uh, such a fantastic uh, structure. Uh, they would accommodate as many as 700 guests uh, sleeping there at any given time. What well, year is this that we're talking 1836, about? 1836, 1837. Well, in New Orleans, as you know, uh, we had a, a very competitive cultures within our city. Uh, the cultures, in fact, were so competitive that uh, within this same period, uh, we developed the municipalities mm -hmm. that we actually, you know, separate our government, our city government, uh, based on uh, ethnicity and uh, cultural backgrounds. So the French, uh, who lived in what today we call the French Quarter, had missed the opportunity to build the St. Charles Hotel in uh, the Mar what we call the Maroney District today. And they lost uh, their economic significance as the center of trade and commerce in, the in New Orleans as a consequence of that. But immediately after opening the St. Charles, the French Creole population opened the St. Louis, which is on the site of the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel. But you have within these great hotels vast bar rooms that remember these are all male institutions for the most part the bars themselves the bar at the st charles was on the ground floor and was set at the busiest hour to accommodate 800 men and after they had finished the day's commerce which in the daytime uh, these places were called exchanges and they were essentially auction houses the slave auctions would actually happen within the bars themselves uh, the commodities auctions cotton uh, sugar uh, would happen within the bars themselves and then at night after commerce was done all of these transient men would gather in these bars and this is when bartending as we know it really comes into existence and you know descriptions as early as the 1830s and 1840s describe bartenders as we would recognize them today in white jackets with uh, shakers uh, uh, mixing drinks uh, together uh, with uh, with ice uh, and making cold drinks and and so really out of a you know desire to please our guest which is the fundamental tenet of hospitality, you know, uh, the bartenders became more and more polished. And this is where, you know, drinking as we know it today comes into play. So we've got the St. Charles and we've got the St. Louis. What other hotels figure into this tale? Get well, you, you know, one of the consequences of the Civil War, you know, the economic preeminence of New Orleans was destined to end regardless of the war. 
And that was because of railroads. Railroads could go places that boats could not. And New Orleans missed the boat, so to speak, with, with railroads. But one of the unforeseen consequences of railroads is they allowed discretionary travel. You could be in New York in January when it was 20 degrees and sleeting, or worse, snowing, get on the train, and two days later be in sunny New Orleans, and it'd be sunny and just absolutely, <laughs> absolutely lovely. And so, you know, in a devastated post-Civil War economy, our city fathers uh, envisaged a new economic model for the city and started marketing it as a tourist destination and winter resort. And as momentum gained uh, in the travel industry, we again had another explosion in necessity for accommodations. So by the 1880s, you see uh, businessmen like Theodore Grunewald, uh, Antonio Monteleon create vast uh, hotels for the traveling businessman. The fascinating part for me, you know, was to discover that, you know, this economic model that was established in the 1880s is the same one that we're operating under today, you know, 130 years later. So by the 1880s, were ladies in the bar room? No. Uh, Prohibition is the seminal moment uh, for women to be allowed in bars. Now, in New Orleans, we had a unique cultural uh, tradition in that we allowed ladies in bars on Mardi Gras Day. Okay. And ladies were allowed to patronize the Ramus Bar on Mardi Gras Day. And in fact, uh, by 1900, the Ramus Bar had become so famous and the demand so great that they actually created a ladies' side room so that women could come but not be at the main bar to uh, disturb the sanctity of the uh, all bail. <laughs> the all bail. And the Sazerac Bar had a similar policy and the rest of the year you would actually come up with your chosen companion and pull up in front of the bar in your carriage and the gentleman would walk into the bar uh, get a Ramus Gin Fizz and then bring it back out to the carriage and take it home with you. Oh it was the origin of the Go Cup? Exactly. (laughs) No but before Prohibition women who patronized bars were seen to be of less than sterling character. after prohibition, really because of prohibition, prohibition brings women into bars and it becomes publicly socially acceptable for women to patronize bars. Uh, in 1949, uh, uh, actually before 1949, uh, the Sazerac Bar moves from what had been uh, the Ramus Bar. The most famous bar in New Orleans in the 1850s was called the Jewel of the South. And it was opposite the Gravier Street entrance of the St. Charles Hotel. And the bartender there and proprietor's name was Joseph Santini. And he had run the bar at the St. Louis and is credited with the invention of the Brandy Crusta, which belongs to a class of drinks called by Gary Regan, the great cocktail writer, New Orleans Sours, uh, which are the first drinks to use an orange-flavored liqueur, triple sec, Cointreau, Grand Marnier, Curacao, as the sweetening agent in a drink as opposed to using sugar. So the Brandy Crusta evolves, for instance, into the sidecar, which evolves into the margarita, and today's iteration would be the Cosmopolitan. It's the same basic formula. So when Santini dies, he owns the whole block. 
Henry Ramus in the 1880 comes and buys the corner leases, the corner of Gravier and Carondelet, and opens the Imperial Cabinet Saloon. And in 1907, he moves into the Stag Bar, but this had been the former location of Santini's Bar. Well, in 1933, when Prohibition is over, the Sazerac Bar moves from where it had been on Royal Street to the former Ramus location where the Imperial Cabinet was located. So you have in this one location at the corner of Gravier and Cronlet, you had Santini, you had Ramus, and you have the Sazerac, the three pillars, if you will, of New Orleans cocktail culture all occupy the same physical location over a 75-year period. What a great story that is. Chris, you are one of the most fascinating people that I have ever met, and I feel so lucky to have had this opportunity to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for coming to talk with us. Oh, my pleasure. Chris McMillan, cocktail historian extraordinaire, speaking to Louisiana Eats a few years back. The legendary New Orleans barman is co-owner of Revel in New Orleans Mid-City, which is temporarily closed due to coronavirus restrictions. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com. And while you're podcasting us, don't forget to rate us on your preferred platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and our new sponsor, Crystal Hot Sauce. In my kitchen... Crystal is more than just hot sauce. It's an ingredient. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.